Good evening. Welcome. Welcome to everyone that's come out this evening and those that are joining us online. Um, it's been a blessing so far. How many of you have been blessed? Amen. Amen. Well, um, I have uh, the privilege of sharing a message with you this morning that is near, this evening, that is near and dear to your heart, my heart. So uh, before we do that, let's just bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just come before you now and ask you, Father, to send your spirit. Uh, Father, I just ask that um, as we open your word, that your spirit who inspired this would speak to our hearts as we unpacked some things that you have revealed to uh, your church. We ask that you would give us discernment. And so now, Father, we ask that your spirit would do tonight what no man can do. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I was saying, um, this message is near and dear to my heart, both the gospel, but including the gospel as it is re revealed through Moses. So the gospel according to Moses is one way of describing the sanctuary message. And we're going to be looking at tonight the most precious cleansing, uh, the sanctuary message in light of the most precious message. And uh, I want to start with this. Um, and I have shared this idea, this quote uh, before. I'm just going to summarize this quote. And this was from Abraham Lincoln. And he gave this um, speech. He gave this speech that um, he, um, in, 18, in 1864, so at the height of the Civil War, he gave this speech. And basically he said the world was in need of a good definition of the word liberty. And he said, the American people are just in now in much need of one. And we'll all, we all declare liberty is what he said. We all declare liberty and that we're searching after liberty. But what he said was one group of people in the country was defining liberty in one way. And another group in the country was defining liberty in another way. And while the one group that had liberty and defining it this way called the liberty what the other people were defining liberty as tyranny. And these over here and their liberty that they were searching at where they were calling what these other people were talking about for liberty, they were calling that tyranny. Uh, a, a division among the, the country during a time of great civil war. Not unlike some of the division that we are experiencing and sensing even today. But in like manner to this, the Christian world today is in need of a good definition of the gospel. And the Advent people just now are in desperate need of one. We all declare the gospel, we all use the gospel terms, but we don't all mean the same thing. Sometimes one means one thing and one means the other. And what one person calls the gospel, another person might call heresy and, and vice versa. And in the midst of the plurality of understanding, we need an anchor, we need a blueprint. And the Advent people needed it then, back in the 1800s, and the Advent people need it now. We need a guide, something that can walk us through. Uh, and that is what really the sanctuary is. The sanctuary is the gospel in picture form as a message. And that is... Um, our topic tonight and as it relates to the 1888 message or the most precious message that the Lord sent. 
Um, when I was uh, in college, I stumbled into a bookstore and found the book that Bob referenced the other night, and that is Stephen Haskell's book, The Cross and the Shadow. And I would recommend that book to everyone. I stumbled upon that book, and I stumbled upon a couple other books, and it was new to me, you know, when I was going through what was the Adventist Book Center there at Pacific Union College, I came across books and just taught myself or learned about that. And I actually, I would back that up, I would say, back up and say that the Lord actually taught, led me to those books and taught me those things. Uh, when I was um, in medical school, I had opportunity to invite people to do Bible studies in the evening, and I used to set up a, a sanctuary and do Bible studies on the sanctuary and the sanctuary message. And many of uh, the, the um, students that were coming through, many of them who grew up in the church, um, they actually said, where did you learn this? And many of them, it was actually completely new or strange understanding. That it may be a mistake to um, assume that people under know and understand the sanctuary message. And uh, so I'm going to spend a little time as we start just kind of summarizing in broad strokes the sanctuary message. And I would just encourage you to, to study that out for yourself. Um, but I want to just, as a way of a teaser, just give some broad strokes to that. Um, Sometimes the sanctuary is thought of maybe as a relic or not relevant. Growing up, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist now for 45 years. I didn't grow up in the church. And I can say that from a pulpit, I think I have heard in a church, in a church pulpit, I think I've heard a total of two sermons on the sanctuary. And uh, one of them was right here in Michigan by Elder Jay Gallimore gave that. And so I was very thankful and I went up and told him thank you for sharing that because it's not something we hear often. Maybe we don't hear often because we take it for granted or we assume people understand the significance of it. Um, <clears throat> I just want to, uh, so again we're just going to paint some broad strokes here to start with and I, I will use the verse in Hebrews 9.5 where Paul said, of these things I cannot speak in detail now, so we're not going to speak in detail but speak in broad strokes. And I'll reset that. Um, there's a couple verses that I want to just start with and that is this and the purpose, what is the purpose of the sanctuary? And if you could advance that for me that'd be great and we'll just do it that way because that doesn't seem to be making making a connection right now. So in Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 uh, the, 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 the is what's recorded here is the purpose for the sanctuary and he says in Exodus 25 verse 8 let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. So the whole purpose of the sanctuary message, all of this elaborate um, detail that uh, the Lord had the children of Israel build was for the purpose of what? Let them dwell, uh, that I might dwell among them. That was the purpose of the sanctuary. And it reminds me of another verse in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and that is um, verse 16 where it says for you 
are what? The temple of God. You are the temple of God. And a matter of fact, I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and turn with me there um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's just read it since we don't have it on the slide, the, the screen right now. Is it there? Oh, how come it's not back here? Okay, I see. And that's what Paul was doing this morning when he was looking. Okay, so for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their people and they, I will be their God and they will be my people. So again, the principle, purpose of the sanctuary was to point to the main purpose of the gospel and that is that I might dwell among them. And then in Psalms, Chapter, nine, uh, chapter 77, verse 13, we read this. Thy way, O Lord, is in the sanctuary. And that reminds me of John 14, 5, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. In the sanctuary, the psalmist saw that God's way, God's way of deliverance, God's, God's expression of mercy, it was all there in the sanctuary. And many times we think of because of the formality of everything that's there and it's all technical that it's, it, we don't see that personal uh, presence of God there. And so the sanctuary just has this basic outline and this is for those of you that may not be familiar with the sanctuary. But basically there was an outer court which represented the earthly work of, of salvation and Christ's earthly ministry. And it was a, 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 a fence or a large uh, white fence that went around it that was on pillars and that was higher than a man. A man couldn't go over it or see over it. And they had to go in through the east side where there was a gate and through that gate they would pass. So there was only one way through and it was situated in a very specific way with the gate to the east and the reason for that is because the people in that day mostly worshipped the sun and so their back was actually to the sun and God set his sanctuary up in a way that they would not be facing the sun. And they would come in and the first thing they would encounter would be the altar, a burnt offering. And then the next thing in the outer court was the laver that the priest would, would wash with. And then, uh, he would then step into the holy place or the temple which was divided in two parts. The holy place and the most holy place. And it reminds me of things like at the gate. Well, you can think of it this way. Jesus, who started with the Father, came to heaven and to earth, was baptized for his ministry, a baptism of repentance for all of us. He was sacrificed on the altar, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was sacrificed there and now stands at the gate saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in, the, in the, the, the holy place and the most holy place, of course, were the, the seven-branch candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the, uh, in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant with God's Ten Commandments, with the, with the bowl of manna, and Aaron's budded rod. 
overlying that was what? Was the mercy seat and the cherub and there the Shekinah glory would dwell. And that is just a, a broad overview of kind of what was there and I encourage you to look at some of those details and make that a study. It would be a fruitful study. Everything very significant prophetically and everything very significant for the gospel. The sanctuary within the Bible is like a multifaceted blueprint to the plan of salvation. It was a picture plan. It was a, a syllabus as it were. You've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. I think the picture in the sanctuary is 10,000 or 20,000 or maybe even a hundred thousand words that's there. That picture is, and the, and the thing about a picture in a drawing is it's not, they're not things that can be moved around. They're not things that can be really, really questioned. They're there. It's solid. It's objective. Objective. And and whereas words, we can sometimes, there's shades of meaning and we can sometimes lose that. So when we have a blueprint or an anchor for the gospel, we have the gospel according to Moses, agreeing with the gospel according to Jesus, agreeing with the gospel according to Paul, and when we have that, we have, the, we have in the mouth of two or three witnesses and the things will be established. When we lose this I mean, God knew what he was doing when he set up this, this picture because it's not something that could be scrambled around. In it is the method and the sequence. In it is the plan and the timing. In it is the purpose and the historical trajectory of the plan of salvation. And with every plan, there's a beginning. With every plan, there is an end. So, how did, how did we as a church? How did we as an Adventist church inherit this? Now, some of you may be watching that may be from other, other faiths and that is, I, I am so good, glad you're watching, welcome, and we're glad you're here. The question though is, how did we inherit this teaching? I think it's significant because it's significant to know um, how it came about and Therefore, it then points to us how important it is. And you'll see that in a moment. Well, first of all, in, Dan in, in Daniel, William Miller, back in the 1800s, had been studying the prophecies. And he saw that in Daniel 8, chapter four, uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, he came across the verse, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And of course, in that day, the Christian, Christian people thought that the cleansing of the sanctuary meant the coming of the cleansing of the earth. That would be cleansing the earth with fire, and that means Jesus is coming. And so that was the Advent message that was preached from 1830 onward um, up until, um, up until well, 1844, and, and you'll see what happened then. So... He, the, William Miller and the Millerite movement, it, the momentum gathered and many souls came and they were impressed that Jesus was coming. But what happened was in 1844, that was the end of this 2,300 day, the longest time prophecy. And at the end of that, they come to it and, and 1843 goes by and Jesus hadn't come. And 1844 goes by in the spring and Jesus hadn't come. And then they readjust it and say, no, no, it's the fall and, and Jesus didn't come. 
And they were sorely disappointed. And the disappointment is significant. I don't know if you've ever experienced disappointment. Hiram Edson experienced disappointment. He had won hundreds of souls to Christ in the year or so leading up to that great disappointment. And can you imagine you're expecting Jesus to come and he doesn't? How about the hundred or so, so more souls that you just led to Christ and they're disappointed? Hiram Edson's disappointment was so profound and he said the day had passed and this is as they're, they're the, in the wee hours of the morning and they're praying and it says the day has passed and our disappointment became a certainty. Our fondest hope and expectations were blasted and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed the loss of earthly friends would have no comparison and he said we wept and we wept till the day dawned. He, he, he thought in his heart and he considered, you know, this was the sweetest part of his Christian experience. And if this wasn't true, what was the rest of his Christian experience? It was a devastating time. And so he and um, O.R.L. Crozier and, and others were praying till the, the wee hours of the morning as the dawn came up. And as the morning progressed, they thought they would go and they would comfort other Advent believers. So they headed across the road and they, and uh, actually not the road, they avoided the road to avoid uh, ridicule and criticism. And so they avoided the ro road to avoid... Uh, Sometimes there's ridicule over this cornfield event. But they walked through to go comfort others and as answer to their prayer, as they were going to the cornfield, the Lord answered Hiram Edson's prayer. And he gave him understanding to the mistake that they had made in their prophetic interpretation. They realized, number one, what Hiram Edson realized during that divine moment of clarity was that the 1844 event was Christ ministry in the sanctuary above was moving from the holy place to the most holy place and that he had a work to do in the most holy place before he would come and cleanse the earth. That was number one. And then the other thing that he was shown was its relation or how it was foretold in Revelation chapter 10. And so, oh great, and so that brings us to Revelation chapter 10 and there um, I took the little book and out of the angel's hand and in it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth but when it was in my stomach it became bitter. That bitter sweet experience of, of Revelation chapter 10. And they saw God's hand in leading. Now I, don't, I know we've all experienced disappointment but has, does God ever use disappointment for a purpose? Can you think of another place in the... I can't do that anymore. Okay. Can you think of another place in the Bible where God has used a disappointment for a purpose? Yeah, so at the cross. 
So at the cross of Calvary, the disciples could only see, they, the scriptures were there, the prophecies were there, Jesus had told them, but they couldn't see that Messiah was going to suffer and die. He told them they were going to suffer and die. They still couldn't see it. It took the cross event, it took the disappointment to open their eyes to the reality of the cross, and when their eyes were open to the reality of the cross, then it could happen. Okay, and it hit me uh, the other night um, when Bob Hunsacker was sharing this quote, and uh, in my notes that I revised that got deleted, it is gone, but it's, I'll, I'll, he said, He's, I'm going to just paraphrase it. So, the cross of Christ, that the, no, Christ's ministry in the sanctuary, Christ's priestly ministry in the sanctuary was as important to us as the cross of Christ. Now that would be, that's very hard to say. Because what could be more important than the cross? But that's actually found in Great Controversy. There in Great Controversy is that, that quote that says, it is just important. So if something just as important as the cross of Christ, then it makes perfect sense that as the cross of Christ was faced, they, faced, they came to the cross of Christ, they had to experience disappointment because there was something they had not yet seen. In the same way when they came to the uh, great disappointment, it was to reveal to them, open to their hearts, something they had not seen because the ministry of Christ that was changing from holy place to most holy place was as significant as the cross of Calvary. Can you imagine, does God want to bring disappointment to people? Can you imagine how painful it was for him, even at Calvary, to bring disappointment to the disciples? But it would have been more disappointing if they hadn't been able to see the realities of the cross. And in like manner, it would have been more disappointing for the Millerites, the early Advent movement, who were restoring the sanctuary, the understanding of the sanctuary, and to put it in its proper light with respect to the gospel and prophecy. It would have been more disappointing for God and for the people to not have gone through what they did. So when the believers, though, think of this, believers fully surrendered, they get this understanding, and what's the thing that happens next? If you were given a divine message from God, if you were shown that this, this, this amazing understanding, something you were struggling with in Scripture, if you were shown it, what would you do next? You would very likely type out a text post it on Facebook, you would just write and send it out. But these Advent believers were honest men and honest women. They didn't take just a revelation, a divine revelation as at face value. This could be true, this might not be true. Despise not prophesy, prove all things and hold fast to that which was true. And that was, was amazing to me is to find out that, that that O.R.L. Crozier and, and um, Edson and others studied this out and it wasn't for 15 months, a year and a half of study and preparation before they published that manuscript that, uh, that appeared in the Daystar in 1896. 
February 7, 1896. 1846, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, published in the Star Extra in 1846. And it was amazing because um, it's not, God doesn't just give a revelation and want you to say, okay, this is the truth. He, he drove them to the scriptures and wanted them to prove it from scripture. That's how it works. That's how inspiration works, not to bypass scripture. And then the other, the other assurance that came is actually a, um, uh, from uh, Ellen White received a vision. She received a vision not after Crozier published his article, but a year before. Six months after the disappointment, the Lord revealed to her the understanding, but as is usual, many times she was not able to actually articulate it until she saw it later. And as she saw it come out in Crozier's article, and then a year later people were questioning, she, she said that I can fully authorize by the Lord to recommend the extra, the Daystar Extra, to every saint. I would recommend that you look at this. This is a great article. You can find this at the Adventist Pioneer Library and you can go through, Crozier looks through every single passage in scripture and looks at this frontwards and backwards. Okay. So, O.R.L. Crozier. And this led the Adventist believers to a, a, a a hermeneutical outline, a way of looking at scripture that gave them a lens so they could see both prophecy and they could see also the gospel. So it was a hermeneutical lens to understand prophecy and the gospel. In my own personal experience, I have uh, am settled into the importance of both of understanding the, the sanctuary as a blueprint to salvation um, from statements uh, like found in this book, Evangelism. As a people, we should be earnest students of prophecy. We should not rest until we become intelligent in regard to the subject of the sanctuary, which is brought out in the visions of Daniel and Revelation. You, you can't really understand the visions of Daniel and Revelation or without, without understanding the sanctuary and bringing in the symbolism that's there. And others, other statements as well, one right after another about the importance of the sanctuary. She would later actually talk about the sanctuary as being one of those immovable elements of the firm platform for which the church was established and the Advent movement was raised up. But I want to talk now about a distinction uh, and what is the distinction that the Advent believers actually saw and discovered. And that was this, a distinction between holy place and most holy place. Remember this whole disappointment was based on, was to bring their attention to what was happening. So if God brings you to the disappointment again, it has to be important. So according to Crozier in his article, he talks about the daily versus the yearly. And um, 
Dr. Fred Bischoff has an amazing article, one of his um, one of his shorter studies of 36 pages, and if you're interested, I'm happy to provide the link to that for you, where he looks at these in the Hebrew, looking at daily and yearly, daily and the day, and he does a great way of breaking it down, and I would just refer you to that article. Um, and if you're interested, you, you, I'll be happy to provide it for you. And those online, you can ask for it. We'll send you the link for it. But I, um, so he saw two, he saw some things. He saw first of all the daily what was taking place in the holy place was an individual case ministry, whereas what was taking place in the most holy place was something that was taking place for the entire nation. It was a corporate uh, a corporate event. On the Day of Atonement, the whole congregation of Israel was called to come and come before the Lord. It was a consecrated day of holy rest. And to afflict your soul. Now, afflicting your soul may not sound like a comfortable thing, but to be honest with God, to open up with God. And that was uh, what they were called to do. It was a corporate body, not an individual event. The daily dealt with the forgiveness of sins. The, the yearly involved the blotting out of sins. The heaven shifted its dealing from the continual daily sin and sinning to a ministry of bringing sin to an end. Which makes perfect sense because that would be the end of the gospel as it's preparing just before Jesus comes. In the holy place of the early sanctuary, known sins were to be confessed every day. On the yearly day of atonement, the service of the most holy place was to blot out the sins. These symbols can have meaning only as they point to the real thing for which they stood for. And that means that from the cross to 1844 in the holy place, there was a work in the conscious mind and outward actions in the first apartment. And Paul Conniff said it clearly, and there's, there's no other way to describe it, but this was dealing with the fruit of our human nature. This was dealing with the sins, the individual sins that people were, were confessing before God. But the gospel of the most holy place was dealing with the root. It was a, it was a work going to the unconscious mind to what is lying deep and what is the cause of sin and selfishness. And that was the work that was to, play, that was to take place during the Day of Atonement, a removal of the root. And part of why Christ's work in the holy place prior to 1844, it may have been due to the obscuring of the gospel in the true sanctuary from the falling away and the man of sin during the... the, the Church of the Middle Ages. It uh, may have um, been that the people themselves, just as they come to Christ, had only the capacity to see the fruit and deal with the fruit. But you know that how Jesus says to his disciples, there's more that I would share with you, but you're not able. So, because I sometimes ask, why do we have two ministries? I think it has to do, there's more that I have for you, but you're not able. And through the Reformation, um, 
and its cumulative understanding of the work of our great high priest, this, uh, the sanctuary um, message had to be recovered. The work of the most holy place had to be recovered and restored. So from 1844 to the present, the most holy place was a finishing of the work that had to be done. Um, the universe was to see the recreation of the children of God putting away of sin with the unconscious enmity against him and was revealed. Uh, and so not only was is revealed sin and known sin taking care of the fruit, but the unconscious sin was to be brought before them and to be uncovered. And that was the work. That's the work now. So where does the idea of this unconscious work come from? Well, it comes from the Laodicean message, right? Isn't the message to the Laodicean about unconscious, something that you don't know? You think that you are rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing? He's asking them to repent of something they don't know. How can we repent of something we don't know unless God is going to take us deeper in our experience to show us what we do not know? And that's the work of the most holy place. Um, this is just some language that appears in, uh, so the question is, did the 88 messengers embrace this idea? Does the spirit of prophecy, does, does Ellen White embrace this idea later in his, her ministry? And the answer is absolutely yes. First of all, the idea of the subconscious cleansing uh, in Signs of the Times, 1901, she writes this, God's law reaches the feelings and the motives as well as the outward acts. It reveals the secrets of the heart, flashing light upon things before buried in darkness. He knows what's in our very heart. He knows the source of, of everything that's there. And that's sometimes a scary thing. Um, you've heard, uh, you may have heard it said um, that, the sin, that the books in heaven record the sins that you would commit, that you would commit, that you would have committed if you've had the opportunity. That's part of this, of this quotation here says God has a perfect photograph of every man's character and this photograph he compares with his law. He reveals to man the defects and mars of his life and calls upon him to repent and turn from sin. Is that encouraging or kind of discouraging? What's the thought? <laughs> kind of discouraging? Yeah, it's kind of discouraging. But the point is this, sin is much more than an action. Sometimes we think of it as an action, we think of it as these things that we need to take care of. The sin is actually a condition of the mind and the Day of Atonement takes us there. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, you, we read this verse, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's an inner working. Just to look at um, what A.T. Uh, Jones said, no, Ellen White, sorry, I can't read that slide in the back, I'm sorry. Uh, just to, to read one other passage from Spirit of Prophecy in, in about um, the work of mediation. She says, there is a special work of purification of putting away of sins among God's people upon earth. This work is more clearly presented in the mes messages of Revelation 14 than this work, when this work is accomplished, the followers of Christ will be ready for his appearing. 
She understood that there was a work to be done in, his, in, in God's people before he could come, and she continued to articulate that throughout her ministry. A.T. Jones, uh, in a book called The Consecrated Way, he put it this way, the finishing of the mystery of God is the ending of the work of the gospel. And the ending of the work of the gospel is first the taking away of all vestige of sin and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, Christ fully formed within each believer. And then Joe go Jones goes on to make a comparison and he asks this question. Basically, he says, is it, is it fair to put our great high priest and his ministry on the level of a counterfeit priesthood and a counterfeit ministry? And he talks about the little horn and the man of sin and put in, that has been put in place of Christ's ministry and his high priestly ministry. He talks about a sinful priesthood, a sinful ministry, and a sinful sanctuary placed in place of a heavenly sanctuary and a most holy priesthood. And in the first, the counterfeit, he says, the sinner confesses and goes on sinning with no power. But he says the sad thing is, isn't it true that those who believe in Jesus and his priestly ministry are doing the same thing? The question Jones asks, so he asks this question, is it fair? Is it fair? He says, therefore, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ in the sacrifice which he has made in the priesthood and ministry which he exercises in the true sanctuary must not only confess his sins, but he must then forever implicitly trust that the true high priest in his ministry in the true high priest in his ministry in the sanctuary to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness in his heart. Jones actually spends a lot of time, uh, and you can find many references, and he really, this was a subject that was really important to him. Um, Wagner doesn't have quite as many references, but he does say this in the Everlasting Covenant, therefore it follows that the cleansing of the sanctuary, a work that is set forth in the scripture, is immediately preceding the coming of the Lord is coincident with the complete cleansing of the people of God on this earth and preparing them for translation when the Lord comes. So Wegner still, Wegner had a con, uh, still held to this concept and, and would reference it, but not nearly as much as Joan did, Jones did. But clearly Ellen White, clearly the 1888 messengers were champ, who were champions of righteousness by faith were not ashamed to proclaim the righteousness that was by faith is not only forgiveness, and removal of guilt and condemnation of sin, but also had to do with a cleansing of the heart and a removal or a forgiveness of the inner inner um, man and the, the uh, removal of sin from our life. So as a matter of fact, it was described, it, it was described in such an impossible way. I mean, when you think of it, to remove every vestige of sin, and sinning? I mean, that's such an incredibly impossible way. What, that, is, that, is not a, that is not good news. That's an incredibly discouraging message. 
Well, Zerubbabel was discouraged. Zerubbabel was a governor in Babylon. Zerubbabel was after Bab after after um, Israel was called out of Babylon and returned to Jerusalem, Zerubbabel was a governor there in Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel is very interesting. His name means sown in Babylon. So he grew up in Babylon, was called out with Cyrus's first decree in 538, Zerubbabel returns to Jerusalem in 535 BCE. And for five years under great opposition to restore and rebuild the, the sanctuary, he, he, is, he is leading the people and they're trying to rebuild the sanctuary and they get the foundation built and after five years of great opposition and difficulty, the building stopped. It stopped for about 10 years until the Lord sent Haggai. Haggai came with a message for Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. And that message can be found in the book of Haggai, chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's a two-chapter book. I encourage you to read that. But the messages, there's actually four messages. And the first one, the first three are both to Zach. Uh, to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. The fourth one comes to Zerubbabel alone. And the first one was basically this, return to your work of restoring the temple. The Lord has called you to come back to Jerusalem and restore the temple. Return to your work. And he described their condition like um, doing lots of things but not having very many results. Like, like a purse, like putting your coins in a purse with holes in it. And the second message was, it may not look like much, the temple, compared to things in the past. But this will be greater because the desire of all nations will actually come to this temple. And then the third one was a revelation of their true condition. He had this parable about this holy meat that they held in their garment and asked, would the holy meat make these common things holy? And their answer was no. And then the next, the next comparison is, well, what if an unclean man who touches a dead body touches these common things? Would that make them unclean? And the answer was absolutely yes. And in so doing, he was revealing to Zerubbabel and their people the uncleanness of their heart. He was showing them their too true condition of, that they had not realized up to that point. And then the fourth message that he sent to Zerubbabel was a promise of hope. It's a promise that he it was basically, I will make you a signet ring. And a signet ring was like a seal. The king's signet was his seal. It was that he could sign documents, he could, he could give orders, and it, it com commanded great authority. But it's interesting, he didn't say, I will give you a signet ring. He said, I will make you a signet ring. I will make you to be my seal. It was a sealing message. God to Zerubbabel was saying, I am going to make you. I am going to write my signature on you. You will be my signature. 
So he was, they were called out of Babylon to restore a sanctuary. They were directed to restore the Lord's temple. They would ex be exceed, it would exceed the previous glory because of the presence of the desire of all nations. The restoration uh, of, the, of the people does not come by holy things, but by personal renewal and the Lord bringing holiness into their life. And it was going to culminate in being made a signet ring, a sealing ring. Now those of you who were here last night, um, Dr. Hunsacker gave you an assignment. How many of you did that assignment? Do you remember what that was, those of you who were on last night? So he said, he, in talking about the most precious message that the Lord sent, he said there's only one other place in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy that that's used. And he, he thought it was significant, and I agree with him, because here in Prophets and Kings, speaking of Zerubbabel, it says, to Zerubbabel their leader, he who through all the years since their return from Babylon had seen, been so sorely tried, was given the most precious message. And the message that, that she goes on to talking about was about the signet ring that was there, about how I'm gonna make you the signet ring. The most precious message that came to Zerubbabel was about the sealing. Now, you might think in terms of the, how this might apply to you. You might think of how does this apply to your church. Um, in the same way today, God's people have been called out of Babylon under the directive to restore the sanctuary. And while experiencing setbacks and obstacles, many of them from their own making, the Lord has sent a most precious message. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. So if you have, you see the obstacles in your own life, and you see the struggles that you're having in your own life, the answer, the most precious message that he is sending to his people, just as it was to Zerubbabel when Zerubbabel was facing the discouragement and obstacles in his life. And that would be a, that would be a, apply personally and we could apply that corporately too as a church. A most precious message that he sent. A sealing message as it were to bring to fruition that which restored, restoring the sanctuary understanding calls for. It's restoring the understanding of a cleansing of a sanctuary and a most holy place work to, to reach to the root of the problem, the unconscious issues that we have as people. And the glory of the sanctuary work would only exceed its former as the desire of nations himself attend the work himself, which is to keep, basically, to keep the faith of Jesus. You know the purpose, remember the purpose of the sanctuary is what? That I might dwell among them. It reminds me of in John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among them tabernacled among them, became one with us, became into the tabernacle of humanity by taking on human nature. And then wanting to tabernacle with us personally in our hearts. 
We may shrink from a message like the sanctuary or the cleansing of the sanctuary or the Day of Atonement because we can't reconcile the disconnect between the call and the reality of our life. So we seek, may seek to form a different way, a new theory, a better model, or we shrink and avoid uh, mentioning it because it may lose influence with a wider community or might lose our audience. If we neglect or leave off the finishing of the gospel, we will betray the gospel itself and Christ himself. But listen, the law was given to what? To lead us to Christ. The most holy place is part of the law of Moses, is it not? And the whole point of unveiling the work, the, the solemn, incredible, unachievable in our own effort work in the most holy place is to drive us to the one who can achieve it. It's to, it's to drive us to the cross and to drive us to Christ himself. When we come into the most holy place of the sanctuary and see the work that God has laid out for his people, it does the first thing that righteousness by faith does, right? Righteousness by faith is the work of laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for him that which he cannot do for himself. That's the point. The work that God has laid before us is so astronomical because it's not our work to do. You know, Moses, the gospel according to Moses tells us something very important that we often miss. The sinner's role in that whole sanctuary process is to bring the lamb and cut the throat, is to come with a humble heart it's to come with confession and great need. On the Day of Atonement is to afflict the soul to come with a great need and to realize our great need. To come as a Sabbath rest is to seek, cease from our own labor and are trying to reproduce that what God is trying to call us to, but to allow Him to do it. So it essentially lays the glory of man into the dust, which then sets us up for the perfect, the perfect solution that is then it can allow God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It requires the faith of Abraham to come to the realization of a complete impossibility in ourselves and to believe that he can and you can't. For it is his work to complete, and he desires more than anything to accomplish this in the lives and hearts of his people. How do you know he can do it? He did it 2,000 years ago when he came and he was tempted in all points like as you were, yet without sin. Why is he doing this? Why does he want to do this work? Why is this necessary? Because a wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked bride is not one who is ready. I mean, if you were at the altar, and the groom was here, and the whole, the whole congregation was full waiting for the bride to come in, and you open the door and the bride marches in, only to discover herself at that moment that she is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, what would she do? She would run as far as she could run 
she would be so mortified and humiliated by the exposure of her shame and nakedness in the front of this opportunity to have a great witness. The gospel needs a witness. The bride is to be her witness. The Lord would not put us to that shame. And so we wait. He waits. Can you imagine his disappointment? We've talked about the disappointment of the disciples, the great disappointment during the mid-1800s. Can you imagine Christ's disappointment as he's waiting for his bride? He needs an end-time apocalyptic witness, and that's what his church is called to. And is not proclaimed to, it is not prepared to proclaim the everlasting gospel with the final loud cry to the rest of the people. The gospel will be real and living, needs to be real and living in the hearts of his end-time people as that, this is the gospel, that will be the witness to all the world, and then the end shall come. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5. I just want to end with this appeal from Paul to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 14 and then read through parts of this all the way to chapter 7, verse 1. And I want you to catch Paul's appeal and, and, and realize this is a Day of Atonement appeal. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Paul was compelled and pushed forward by the idea of something that he saw on the cross of Calvary. And what he saw on the cross of Calvary was not just a man dying for a bunch of people, but he saw a bunch of people dying in a man. He saw Christ who became one with humanity and when he died and bore the sins of the world, he took the world with him. And it says he died for all, that all who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Do you want to know why Jesus died? Here's why Jesus died. He died for all that they would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, how many are in Christ? Everyone is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. See, Paul saw that every single man, woman, and child, he saw them as reconciled and saw them as new creatures. And in verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and committing to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. How many of you want to be ambassadors for Christ? As through God, we are pleading through, he's pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. 
He says, be reconciled. Don't get reconciled. He says, be reconciled. Be what you already are. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. He wanted, the day of atonement experience is why he died. That his people would follow him all the way through the plan of salvation, all the way to the end, is why he died. Verse 6, chapter 1, And then as workers together with him, also pleading with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now we think of this in terms of, of good dating practices. But think of it when you are divided with an inner man, with a believer and an unbeliever, believing with your mind but in your heart divided. Do not be unequally yoked with believer and unbeliever for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? The answer to all of these questions is they have no part. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, he says, and be separated. The question is then for us, we know the passage, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The question then is, when shall the sanctuary be cleansed? Are you weary of the struggling with sin? Are you tired of repetitive cycle of failure and discouragement? Be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. He has condemned sin in the flesh. But you must recognize that the one who condemns sin in the flesh does not condemn you. That's a big difference. We find ourselves, when we find ourselves cast at Jesus' feet in our nakedness and our failures, his first words are the same that came to the woman who was thrown in front of him in the temple. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Before the go and sin no more could even be an, a, an issue, they, she had to have the full assurance that he stood before the one that did not condemn her. That he completely saw this as good news for her. To deliver her from that which she struggled with. From the roots that she was, that were bringing her down. From the shame and the guilt that all of that brings. You are a new creature. You don't have to make yourself one. He has already done it. All that is left is do you believe him? You already believe that he did it 2,000 years ago. Will you believe that he will do it today in you? As he ministers in the Holy of Holies, he can do it again in your heart and mind this day and the next and the next. So as we consider the work that Jesus undertook in the Day of Atonement, for his church, the only question is, do we believe him? And will we let him bring an end to sin? 
reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness in our lives and in our church. Is that your desire? Is that your desire tonight? It's my desire. If that's your desire, I want to invite you that wherever you are, here in the tabernacle or at home, any place here, I want, wherever you are, I just want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your head and come before him in his temple. And as you come before him in your temple with your eyes closed and your head bowed, we suddenly realize, like Isaiah, as he came before the Lord in his temple, that we are undone. That we are a people of unclean lips. And that which what he is calling us to is undoable by us. And the good news is, he doesn't ask us. He's not asking us to do it because he knows we can't. He's asking us to let him do it. Let's make that our prayer tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you for your promises. Father, we come before you in humility, knowing our great need, knowing the things that each one of us personally that we're struggling with, knowing our faults, knowing our weaknesses, and you know them. You know them. You know why. And you know the, you know the solution. As our great high priest ministering in the sanctuary, we want to say first, we are sorry. We are sorry that we have made your ministry something less than it is and put it on par with something that was man-made. And we ask, Father, that you would do for us that which only you can do. Take us through whatever that process is, Father. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.